Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Hold the glories of which is found in your word, the treasures found in Christ. Lord, that we might be able to learn and behold the wondrous things found in your word. Lord, help us to be able to see that we are but sojourners on this earth. And don't hide your commandments from us, but help us to be able to see them, to be able to trust in you. Lord, let our souls be consumed by you and your love for us. Let us understand the hope of the gospel, even in a difficult passage like this where we see the bad news which comes before the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Here now the word of the Lord from Jude Jude 1 uh, to 7 will be uh, reading 1 to 7 this morning. Is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroys the, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness in the day, until the day, the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Turn this morning to a, a difficult passage. It's not difficult because of the contents of it, although there are some difficult portions of it. It's difficult generally because of what it speaks of. Judgment, eternal judgment, punishment. And Jude, as he opens his letter, he he tells them that he seeks for them to be able to contend for the faith, what he wants them to do. But why he is telling them to contend for the faith is because people have crept in to the church unnoticed. He's writing to Christians, those who are called beloved and kept, But he doesn't begin with how they are to contend for the faith. He first begins to be able to outlay and spell out the false teaching which has crept into the church. He begins by saying that, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that this truth that they knew, they quickly forgot. doesn't mean that necessarily we don't understand it today. Or we don't need to be reminded of these things. But in this time, Jude tells us three stories 
in history that all have a similar theme. He shows us of these three sins committed and these three outcomes of these sins. Under this big category of what you would call judgment. Now before I begin with Jude's reminders to the church, we do need to remember that he is speaking to the church. That it is the church that the false teachers have crept into, who have crept in unnoticed, he's reminding these not to those outside. We often think that once we've heard the gospel, we don't need to be reminded of, of what that eternal punishment might look like. But Jude here, writing to believers, tells them to remind them of what they once knew. And he begins in this opening portion now. His introduction has done, gone in verses 1 to 4. And now from this section, from verses 5 to 16, he now begins to address these false teachers that have crept into the church. You can even notice this right as you just glance through these verses. He starts using phrases like these people, them, these, there. He uses these, these phrases to speak of a part of a whole. You have the church, but then you have these people within the church. And, he, and he's addressing directly to the false teachers, but he's telling the whole church of what the false teachers are teaching. Those who have crept in unnoticed. And Drew, Jude will then, in verses 17 and teach them how then to be able to contend for the faith in amongst these false teachings. We need to be reminded that he's not speaking of anything new. As these examples show us, that this is quite plain and simple, but yet is forgotten by this church here. The word of warning about what happens to those who reject, rebel, and refuse God's natural order. And his twofold charge that he told them right at the beginning is that they deny, well, they, they, um, they uh, pervert the grace of God, our God into sensuality, and they deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They're the charges. If he was in a court of law, law and he came up, what charges, Jude, do you bring against these false teachers? Well, I have two charges. First, they're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. The second is they're denying our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Well, how did they do that? What about these people, these false teachers that have crept into the church? The first thing he raises and points out is the rejection of God's salvation. The rejection of God's salvation. Jude begins with the great story of Exodus. Now all of these stories and a lot of these things that come up, we can see uh, why the majority of people believe that it's speaking to Jewish audience as he's writing these things, as he points back to the Old Testament. But he goes back to the great story of Exodus, the one that you think everyone in the pew would know. He says, I want to remind you of this story, Exodus. Have you heard of it? Of course we've heard about what happened in that story. 
Now before we turn to the wilderness wanderings and Israel's sins, the ESV translates that Jesus saved the people from Egypt. Now most other translations uh, translate this into the Lord. Now this is a concept that is not foreign in the New Testament. Often, the authors of the New Testament will read back in the Old Testament and what is quoted Yahweh, or Lord, capital letters Lord, they would speak of Jesus. A great example is in Ephesians chapter 4, quoting Psalm 68, about this inheritance. And they change from Yahweh to speak of Christ in the New Testament. Paul explains, even this concept, that Jesus was there when they went into the wilderness, that he is the rock that they drank from in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now if we understand this, either translation doesn't affect the meaning of the text. Judah's highlighting that there are a group of people who are part of the covenant community, but they did not get to inherit the promised land that God had promised to their fathers. And Jude is specifically highlighting one sin that is committed by these people in the story of Numbers. And that is their unbelief. Now it's often a great practice to turn to the passage that is referenced because often is they, they refer to a passage, a story, but you, they know the story better than we do. So if you turn in your Bibles, Numbers chapter four, uh, 16, uh, 14, What is he actually talking about when he says that they uh, did not, uh, they had the judgment of God? The people are finally free. They've seen Pharaoh defeated. They've walked across the Red Sea, walked on dry land, and they're now in the wilderness. And in chapter 14, there's many other times where their sin is prevalent, but here... In chapter 14, right in verse 2, we see that all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become like prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here they are, they're finally free, and they say, why not? We can't go forwards into the promised land, although it's promised to us by God. We can't go forward into the promised land. It's better either for us to die in Egypt, die here, or go back to Egypt. There are options. And they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, thinking that they're not God's appointed people. Here you have these great examples of then Moses and Aaron, Moses in particular, interceding for the people. In verses 26 to 35, this is exactly what the story that um, Jude is referring to. Go down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? 
I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they have grumble, they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward. You have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you to dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jethunah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in. And they shall know that the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will, this will I do, all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, and they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Here there's three options, they say. We can't go forward, so we can either die in Egypt. Well, that's, they can't do that. They can't, we can either go back to Egypt, or we can die in the wilderness. There are the options, and God says, well, be careful what you wish for sometimes. That's exactly what is going to happen. You saw the promised land, you saw the, the splendor, the, how it's flowing with milk and honey, and ten of you said no, and two of you said go, And then of these ten people, they then told the congregation, the congregation then formed an an alliance to try and take out Moses and Aaron, the the people. And Jude reminds the church in the New Testament that they once were saved from slavery, but they're actually not just grumbling against Moses and Aaron, they're grumbling against the Lord. reject the Lord. They reject His land, His promises. And the specific reason that they're told, He says, your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and sh- suffer for your faithlessness. Your unbelief. Now interestingly, this word, throughout the book of Numbers, often is translated and, and used in terms of marriage. Generally actually translated whoredom or other like words. They use their wives and their children as an excuse to be able to return to Egypt. They seek to be able to want to die in the wilderness. And it's exactly what they get. And Jude highlights the outcome of their unbelief. Their sin of unbelief causes them to die in the wilderness, not walking into the promised land. Again, these people saw these great and glorious signs of Exodus. The ten plagues. The walking across the dry land. The provision from the rock and manna. They finally just say, let us go back. The author of Hebrews also points out because of their unbelief that they didn't get to enter and they fall in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 3. 
with whom he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Jude reminds them that here they're walking along the path. They're they're saved, they're free, they're, they're no longer slaves. They're heading towards the promised land, and yet it's their unbelief that they seek to be able to go back. The great warning here we see in Jude is that that one part of contending for the faith is understanding that grace and, and salvation which we have been given. Why then would we go back to that slavery of sin? Why then would we reject Jesus as our Lord and Master if we've been shown the grace of God? Why would we walk in those wicked ways we once walked if we can walk in the like manner following our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Why would we turn back to that sin which we're saved from? Why would we even grumble against God for that sin which He has saved us from? The second story that Jude highlights is the rebellion against God's authority. You see, that's kind of similar in the story of, 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 of Numbers there. They walk out and they say that they reject God in the end, but they begin by saying, well, we want new leaders. We don't want Aaron and Moses. But Jude doesn't use that example. He uses an example of the angels who fell. Jude says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Now this is a hard passage for us to understand. We know what he's talking about in verse 5. We can turn back to that passage in Numbers. and We have the reference in Hebrews 3 and helps us. It's hard for us to be able to understand this historical event he's speaking of. This is where we use the principle, let Scripture interpret Scripture. We have a passage here that is hard for us to understand. What is Jude talking to us about? So in Jude, a good book to be able to turn to is 2 Peter. Often 2 Peter will fill in gaps that Jude does not. Jude will help us understand 2 Peter. They're both very similar. Some people even believe that Jude is written, and Jude kind of created some... Uh, because he wasn't as well-known as other apostles, people were like, well, what is this? And questioning it. So Peter then writes, Second Peter, kind of as a commentary, expanded version of Jude. That's a theory that some people have. So what can we learn from Second Peter and other verses to help us what Jude 6 is speaking about? Well, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, For if God did not spare angels, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed their chains to, of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood out of the world of the ungodly. So we see now G- Peter is explaining this situation where the angels fall, 
and what he connects it to is the story of Noah. We're told specifically in Jude what that specific sin is. They're not staying in their position of authority. But he, Peter helps us understand what he is talking about, what historical event he is talking about. So if you turn back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. This is what that says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 4. 1 to 4. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and the daughters of, were born to them, the sons of God, that they saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives as they chose. When the, then the Lord said, The Spirit of, shall not abide in man forever. For his flesh, he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, this is a difficult passage for us to understand. Who are the sons of men? Who are the sons of God? Uh, There's three really main options. Um, You have the divine beings, they're angels. The second is that they're rulers, princes, um, kings. Or the third is that the line of Seth, that promised line which God promised in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we could spend some time discussing this. I've gone back and forth of, on my opinions on the years. However, it seems that Jude makes it clear that what this is speaking about is of divine beings, that they're angels. You see also Peter connecting those two things, that, that here in the days of Noah, he's referring to what is happening for those who did not count and uh, left their position of authority. I personally believe it speaks of those divine beings. Again, I've changed my views on this. It would take a longer time to explain, but I'm welcome to be able to talk to me about this. But Jude, again, is highlighting that these angels sin against God. The angels reject the authority of God. And Jude then relates it to these false teachers who are denying the authority Authority of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. But again, in Jude, the, the focus is these stories that we might be able to know, but Jude's focus is not just about the sin. We could get all hung up on what the sin is. His focus is where the sin leads to. What the outcome of the sin is. That he says that the rebellion is that now they're being kept. That great judgment on the last day. Now it's interesting that Jude explains that they've been kept by Christ. Now this is the exact same word that Jude used earlier in verse three and verse two and one. They're kept for Jesus Christ, those who are called beloved and kept. But here Christ is for judgment. You have two forms of keeping then. Those who he's keeping for judgment and those who he's been keeping to present blameless, as he says in verse 25 and verse 24. 
But the third example Jude gives of these false teachers is the refusal of God's created order. Jude now turns to the story which is probably most familiar to us of that of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities are which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursues unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here Sodom and Gomorrah are used as an example, not an example of great things, but of what great judgment will come. Now what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? This has become an interesting topic of conversation in recent years. Once I begin to explain why this shift is taken, you might be able to connect some dots. The shift, I think, has come from trying to be a more welcoming and accepting of the world's views of sexuality. Hard to miss the direction, the highlight of all the topics of conversation. What is the main thing that is discussed and talked about? I think anthropology is the big thing, man. Who is man? What is man? How do we define man? And then a certain center of all of this is sexuality. Your sexual identity. And a lot of people who say, well, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is not revolving around sexuality. They turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, which says, Behold, this was the guilt of your system, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, they did not aid the poor and needy. And they explain that Sodom and Gomorrah, their major sin, which why they were wiped out, is they did not show hospitality and they did not care for those who are low in society, the needy. Now I agree with this position. I agree with this position because it's biblical. Ezekiel says here, that here's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. They did not care for those around them. But often what they do is they, they pit Ezekiel verse, uh, chapter 16 against passages like Jude. Or even the telling of the story of Genesis. You've got to be able to use what the Bible tells us without excluding what the other verses of the Bible were selective. But when the Lord tells Abraham of his plan to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says so in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Again, you could spend a lot more time on this topic. But I don't think that the sin of not caring for those around you and the sins of sexual immorality, which Jude points out, are exclusive to one another. Jude highlights the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I think is the emphasis in chapter 19. But, but before chapter 19 happens, you have in chapter 18, before this sin is happening in chapter 19, you have this sin that is happening where God hears this outcry. 
again, I don't think you can then exclude and just say, well, this is the only sin that God is punishing Sodom and Gomorrah for. Ezekiel, I think you might say, if you were to broaden it, you say it's a lack of love for your neighbor. But if their only sin is not caring for the needy, or not showing hospitality, then how do you explain these other verses? That it's never just one sin that we're talking about. Mankind is sinful throughout. And it's not that you just walk down one wicked path and you do all these good deeds. Often when you start to walk down that wicked path, it becomes a many-branch line with many sins where often you're not caring for your neighbor, you're elevating yourself. Jude highlights it's their sexual desire, their immorality. That every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. And the point of Sodom and Gomorrah in the story in Genesis is not just the sin that they're committing there in chapter 19, but it's perverse. All of Sodom and Gomorrah, from the oldest to the youngest, all of them are sinners. Abraham asked if there's one, if there's 100 righteous people, 50, 40 righteous people, what about 10? Would you save the city? Lot and his two daughters are the only ones that finally plead that judgment. Even Lot's two daughters are then to see that the perverse nature of Sodom and Gomorrah upon themselves as well. The perversion is not just found in everything that they do. Sometimes it's not what they do. Sometimes it's what they do. But it's their thinking, their actions. And Jude's point is their indulgence of their pursuit of these sinful desires within them that are not in God's created order. Now it doesn't then take long for us to look into the world and see the mindset of this perversion. Sexual immorality can be found anywhere you look. Pornography can be, is accessed by about 40 million adults regularly. Hookup culture of one-night stands and other short-lived encounters. 60 to 80% of college students have some form of hookup in one way or another. About 23% of adults have cohabitated with someone who they say is in a serious relationship. One in five, 20% of Gen Z, those people born between 1999 and 2003, identify on somewhere on the LGBTQ Spectrum. And from other personal stories, this number is increasingly larger in younger children. I've heard 40, 50% of kids in elementary school somewhere identify on this spectrum. But even if you just follow the statistics of each generation, they each almost double. And that 40% number aligns with how much it is. 20% in Gen Z, the next generation would be about 40%. And this is only those people who identify on that list. If you broaden that to be able to say those who approve or um, affirm this, the numbers would be quite higher, much higher. Statistics on infidelity vary. It's hard to be able to see. If you define adultery in a certain way, you, you don't uphold marriage as much. 
and adultery doesn't seem as much of a biggest sin. They're very, and from 13% to 40%, spouses have said they've committed some form of adultery or another. We need to understand these statistics are numbers. They, they tell incomplete stories depending on the questions you ask, the polling data, your, your field of people you're asking. But also you're assuming that the people are telling the truth. And Jude here is warning that this has crept into the church. All of this. They're not the sins of the world. He's writing to those who are called beloved and kept. He's writing because of that perversion of grace which is taught within the church by these false teachers. But the highlight of all of this is not so much the sins. We need to understand these sins, these three sins that he highlights. But the outcome of those three sins, he tells us all the time, at the end of verse 5, afterward destroyed for those who did not believe. The end of verse 6, kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until that judgment of that great day. Verse 7, and serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's not so much the detail of the sin, the emphasis is where they're going. If your gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ where you're saved by your sins, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, then you don't have a gospel at all. You don't have any good news. All that is left for you is eternal judgment and fire because you deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master. Your grace is not grace. Your good news is not good news. Jesus Christ is not your Savior. He's not your Redeemer. Now again, this is not a popular opinion to think about. But if we're to contend for the faith, we need to understand what that faith is we are contending for. The hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. He has saved us from sins, as the Bible has defined sin. Not how we define sin. He has saved us to walk. That we might one day walk in a way that He walked. That we're dead to sin. Dying to sin. Living to Christ. Day by day. We know that we need God's help for us to be able to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be able to contend for the faith which has been delivered to us through Your Word. Lord, we pray that we would understand this great and glorious faith, the truth of the good news. Help us not to be able to shift it, to change it, because once we do, Lord, we lose the good part of that news and it, it changes drastically. It becomes bad news. Help us to be able to see what You have told us in Your Word, that we might be able to trust in You. Help us not to be able to pervert the Gospel, the grace of God into sensuality. Help us not to be able to deny Jesus as our Lord and Master. We pray, Lord, that we would seek to be able to follow in Jude's footsteps as we contend for the faith. Lord, that we might say things that are unpopular. 
Lord, that are uneasy to speak. But Lord, that we do so with grace and truth, pointing to the hope of the Gospel found only in Jesus Christ. We pray in His precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.